The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Welcome to Trad Reviews on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner, and we're bringing you episode two of the show that seeks to look at a book, a movie, and a board game each month with with a Catholic perspective, uh, the Catholic layman's perspective, as it were, because Sundays are not a particularly great day to grab a member of the clergy to join us. Without a member of the clergy, I feel especially... um, I feel it's incumbent upon me to start with a prayer, so I I will do that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy own Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Well, it's just me tonight, folks, and I have to say, Sunday night, I'm usually in a good mood. So I have to sort of balance that with the fact that we're going to be discussing really important things, especially in our first topic, we're going to be talking about introduction to devout life with St. Francis of Sales. So I'm, I'm going to try to moderate my particularly good mood. Sunday is always a, a wonderful day. Um, it was a beautiful day here in Paris. Um, Paris is always beautiful, but when the weather's good, it's, it's perfect. And... Um, Great sermon at Mass today. It was, it was, a, it was a longer longer sermon than, than Father usually gives. And uh, one of the challenges of not being a native speaker of French is you are paying attention more in a sermon than maybe anyone else in the congregation. And I had, I had to go up to Father afterward. Did you say this? Did you say that? So it's in a good mood. I also had a chance to play some chess with about eight, eight people from all over all over the world, got together and played some chess this afternoon, and uh, made a particularly good meal. So it's Sunday, and, and I had a chance to speak to my parents, and my and I got to see my nieces and nephews, so I'm in a particularly good mood. So keep that in mind when you give us a call. Um, you can give us a call at 949-272-9417. My producer is telling me I need to give the phone number out. I'm, I'm giving the number out. Hold your horses. 949-272-9417 is our phone number. You can do that. If you want to just a- ask a question on Twitter, you can, <laughs> you can do that by going to twitter.com, finding us at True Restoration, and use the hashtag TradReviews. That'll, uh, that'll make it pop up easier. So tonight we're going over Introduction to the Devout Life, the film Ben-Hur, and the board game Monopoly. And as I said, I've got to moderate my, my good mood and I'm going to start with the most serious 
work, which is Introduction to the Devout Life by St. Francis de Sales. And I have to say that St. Francis de Sales is, is truly a master of the spiritual life. And one of the challenges of getting into, into a book like that is the intimidation factor. So when they look at it, say, you know, Stephen, I don't read a whole lot. That looks pretty thick. The St. Francis de Sales, uh, that just might be too much for me. And I, I understand that to an extent. I, I didn't get to this book uh, until my teenage years. So I, I don't give this impression that this is something I read when I was very young. It wasn't. Um, it was recommended to me in 1996. I was exploring a vocation to the priesthood at the time. And the, the priest I was talking to wanted to know if I had read two books. Uh, one of them was Trustful Surrender to Divine Providence, which is something we're going to cover on a future show. But the other one was Introduction to the Devout Life, and I somewhat shamefacedly said no, because he, he asked it with an air of expectation. He was very patient, but I said, well, listen, pick up a couple of these books, Tan puts them out, and you should read them. And I think even the Novus Ordo Tan, owned by Protestants, still puts this out. So it's definitely something that um, was available at the time. And I have to say, I really fell in love with the work. I, I went into it with a good recommendation, but the book really is what it says. It is an introduction to the devout life. And I suppose part of this is asking yourself how seriously you want to take your faith, because all of us have different stages in our life, uh, be it uh, our secular life with our job and getting promoted, or even our religious life. There's, there's periods of fervency, periods where we feel a lot of desolation in the spiritual life. So. I have to say that Introduction to Devout Life is for anyone who wants to take their spiritual life more seriously. So who am I talking to? I'm talking to people who have access to daily mass, reasonable access to daily mass, and don't go. Or people who've never read a spiritual book. And those are two pretty big groups. I think anyone who's, who's read at least one spiritual book, you, this may be something you want to add to, to your collection. Excuse me. Uh, and anyone who is going to, to Mass more than just on Sunday, this is also something uh, that you might already be doing. But those of you who are not taking advantage of going to Mass more than one day a week and you have it available to you, or people who've never read a spiritual book, this is a great place to start. And it's broken up into, it goes in order. So it starts with asking, do you have a firm resolution to, to explore the devout life. Then it goes to prayer and the sacraments. Then it covers virtue, deals with temptations in general, and then renewing and confirming. So it's a cycle. It starts with, do I want the devout life? Okay, prayer and sacraments, exercising virtue, dealing with temptations, and then renewing and confirming your desire for the devout life. And again, I said this before, I'm, I'm simply a layman. I'm sharing my opinion on this, on this work. So I'm not trying to pronounce anything dogmatic. And should a priest disagree with anything that I'm saying, I would always defer to the priest who has the grace of state to, to deal with these questions. So I'm simply just trying to offer my opinions on this really great work. And to do that, uh, I'm not just going to rely on myself. I'm going to take the words of St. Francis de Sales himself, uh, because he said it a lot better than I did. And that's why it's such a classic. I'll read it to you and then, then offer some comments of my own. But as I say, it's, it's great. And the chapters are written in such a way that you could just read one chapter a night. And when I say one chapter, I'm talking about two, three, four pages. 
So those of you who are Steven, that's easy. You're single, you know, you're, you're, you're living that life. You, you have time to do that. But it's caution you don't assume that, you know, because those of us who are single, uh, don't assume that because we're single, we have a ton of free time. That's, that's, that's not necessarily true. Just like I don't assume that, you know, people who are married necessarily have no time whatsoever. But, uh, but having just time to read, even if you didn't read four pages a night, if you read one, you'd get through this in a year. And I think it, it would be well worth it. So part one, chapter one, St. Francis of Sales, I'm, I'm just going to read a, a little bit of this to you. You aim at a devout life, dear child, because as a Christian, you know that such devotion is most acceptable to God's divine majesty. But seeing that the small errors people are wont to commit in the beginning of any undertaking are apt to wax greater as they advance and to become irreparable at last, it is most important that you should thoroughly understand wherein lies the grace of true devotion. And that because while there undoubtedly is such a true devotion, there are also many spurious and idle semblances thereof. And unless you know which is real, you may mistake and waste your energy in pursuing an empty, profitless shadow. Aurelius was wont to paint all his pictures with the features and expression of the women he loved. And even so, we all color devotion according to our own likings and dispositions. One man sets great value on fasting and believes himself to be leading a very devout life, so long as he fasts rigorously, although the while his heart is full of bitterness. And while he will not moisten his lips with wine, perhaps not even with water, in his great abstinence, he does not scruple to steep them in his neighbor's blood through slander and detraction. Another man reckons himself as devout because he repeats many prayers daily, although at the same time he does not refrain from all manner of angry, irritating, conceited, or insulting speeches among his family and neighbors. This man freely opens his purse in almsgiving, but closes his heart to all gentle and forgiving feelings towards those who are opposed to him. While that one is ready enough to forgive his enemies, but will never pay his rightful debts save under pressure. Meanwhile, all these people are conventionally called religious, but nevertheless, they are, they are in no true sense really devout. When Saul's servants sought to take David, Michael induced them to suppose that the lifeless figure lying in his bed and covered with his garments was the man they saw. And in like manner, many people dress up an exterior with the visible act expressive of earnest devotion. And the world supposes them to be really devout and spiritual-minded, while all the time they are mere lay figures, mere phantasms of devotion. So my commentary here is just a reminder. Basically, I just want to add on something that Bishop Dolan has often used, this phrase, Catholic costumes, you know, where people get dressed up in their Catholic costumes and they go to Mass on Sunday. And that's really the exercise of religion for them. And their faith doesn't play a, a daily part in their lives. Now, I suppose people who are taking the time to, to listen to Restoration Radio are probably people who want to go, to go deeper. And so this is the, the, the address here. And all of us can take heart from this. I, you know, we have all been guilty in, in some way or another of this. And there are so many parables that our Lord has in Scripture to deal with these situations that we have to always be mindful of, of how we are being treated. So he then goes on, and again, I'm not going to cover every chapter because there's, there's quite a few chapters and there's quite a few divisions, but I just picked a few that I wanted to talk about. The next uh, is in chapter three that I want to talk about in part one, which is the idea of just because you are in a particular vocation doesn't necessarily mean you're, you're not called to be devout. 
I'll, again, I'll, I'll take from St. Francis here. If the father of family were as regardless in making provision for the future as a capuchin, if the artisan spent the day in church like a religious, if the religious involved himself in all manner of business on his neighbor's behalf, as a bishop is called upon to do, would not such a devotion be ridiculous, ill-regulated, and intolerable? Nevertheless, such a mistake is often made, and the world which cannot or will not discriminate between real devotion and the indiscretion of those who fancy themselves devout, grumbles and finds fault with devotion, which is really no wise concerned in these errors. No, indeed, my child, the devotion which is true hinders nothing, but on the contrary, it perfects everything. And that which runs counter to the rightful vocation of anyone is, you may be sure, a spurious devotion. Aristotle says that the bee sucks honey from flowers without damaging them, leaving them as whole and fresh as it found them. But true devotion does better still, for it not only hinders no manner of vocation or duty, but contrarywise it adorns and beautifies all. Throw precious stones into honey, and each will grow more brilliant according to its several color. And in like manner, everybody fulfills his special calling better when subject to the influence of devotion. Family duties are lighter, married love truer, service to our king more faithful, every kind of occupation more acceptable, and better performed where that is the guide. And sometimes we'll hear this, those of us who are single, from our married friends. We'll say, you know, I, I sure wish that I could do this. Um, or, you know, you, 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 you do that, whether it be spiritual exercises or other things. And I, I think this is a really good chapter to remind us that you are, you are doing whatever you are called to do. If you're married, it means that, you know, your, your religious time sometimes is simply just taking care of your children. And they're not always so cute and cuddly. Sometimes they can be really difficult. But to not, uh, there are those of us who, and I'm guilty of it as well, even as a single person, that, that want to take on more religious duties or, or wish we could, we always have to contextualize that within our state of life. And that ties in really well into the next chapter, because the next chapter, part, uh, part one, chapter four, is titled, The Need of a Guide for Those Who Would Enter Upon and Advance in the Devout Life. Now, spiritual direction is not something we've covered on Restoration Radio. I'm hoping to cover it in a, a future Posteralia episode, shameless plug for one of my other shows. And I, uh, I again, would, would argue that this is something that anyone who wants to take their spiritual life to the next level should try to avail themselves of. I'm not saying that there are always priests available or that a priest will necessarily be able to, to be a, a spiritual director in the way that they might be to a religious you know, make sure that there is a priest that you can consult with on spiritual matters and, and reach out. It should be a priest that you have some kind of relationship with. And, and if you don't have a relationship with a priest, email us here at Restoration Radio, mail at truerestoration.org, and we will try to connect you with a priest that you might be able to, to get some spiritual direction from. If you, if you don't know someone or, or you, you don't feel like you can ask the, your current clergy. So why do I need a, a spiritual director? I, again, reading from St. Francis of Sales, Part 1, Chapter 4 of Introduction to Devout Life. When the Blessed Teresa, and speaking of Teresa of Avila here, when the Blessed Teresa read of the great penances performed by Catherine of Cordova, she desired exceedingly to imitate them, contrary to the mind of her confessor, 
who forbade her to do the like, and she was tempted to disobey him therein. Then God spoke to Teresa, saying, My child, thou art on a good and safe road. True, thou seest all this penance, but verily I esteem thy obedience as a yet greater virtue. And thenceforth, St. Teresa so greatly loved the virtue of obedience that in addition to that due to her superiors, she took a vow of special obedience to a pious ecclesiastic, pledging herself to follow his direction and guidance, which proved an inexpressible help to her. And even so before and after her, many pious souls have subjected their will to God's ministers in order but better to submit themselves to him, a practice much commended by St. Catherine of Siena in her dialogues. So this will be a different mode for each person, depending on his or her state of life. But again, I think part and parcel of wanting a more devout life, wanting a, a stronger spiritual life, the guidance of a spiritual director is going to vary for each person according to his or her own life. But it is something that you should seek out in order to protect you from, from doing penances you shouldn't or or putting together a prayer life that's not appropriate for your grace of state. You might have some common sense. We all might have some common sense, but it never hurts to ask a priest. And in fact, I would say, just as St. Francis of Sales says here, it's not something you should really embark on without the guidance of a priest. So this isn't, in a way, this book, and I was doing a bit of research before the show this week, it's referred to as a self-help book in a way that this is a way for Catholics to work through becoming more devout themselves, but I, I don't think you can really do it without St. Francis's counsel to seek out a priest. So, yes, obviously the priest can't read the book for you. That's something that you need to do, but don't forget that you want to bring a priest in so you don't make mistakes about what's appropriate for your state of life. St. Francis goes on in part one to build towards a general confession, and he, he does this through addressing various things. In chapter six, he addresses mortal sin, saying that you really can't go any further in the devout life if we haven't dealt with an issue of mortal sin. So something to keep in mind, that this, if this is an issue for, for any of us, that this is something that St. Francis says has to be dealt with first. And really, I don't really suppose there's, there's too much more to say about that. Chapter 7 is a follow-up, the second purification from all sinful affections. And again, St. Francis says, Be sure, my child, that if you seek to lead a devout life, you must not merely forsake sin, but you must further cleanse your heart from all affections pertaining to sin. For to say nothing of the danger of a relapse, these wretched affections will perpetually enfeeble your mind and clog it so that you will be unable to be diligent, ready, and frequent in good works, wherein nevertheless lies the very essence of all true devotion. Souls which, in spite of having forsaken sin, yet retain such likings and longings, remind us of those persons who, without being actually ill, are pale and sickly, languid in all they do, eating without appetite, sleeping without refreshment, laughing without mirth, dragging themselves about rather than walking briskly. Such souls, as I have described, lose all the grace of their good deeds, which are probably few and feeble through their spiritual languor. So, obviously, St. Francis addresses, addresses mortal sin first, and then 
the affections, affections and attachments to venial sin. Then he provides two excellent meditations. And in the sense of a guided meditation where he puts together he, the preparation, tells you what it is that you'll want to be thinking about, wh- how, where to put your mind. And then he gives you a, an imaginative picture and then asks you to work through this picture. It's, it's, I don't want to say it's praying by color, but it's, it just, it's really helpful for those, those of us. And, and I was definitely someone at the time when I first was reading that, I didn't know where to start with mental prayer. And, and these chapters, chapter 17 and chapter 18 particularly, and there's all these meditations that St. Francis puts together for us, but really paint a wonderful picture and help us get ready. So chapter 17 is a meditation on a choice between heaven and hell, which I know suppose might be kind of an obvious one. There's also a meditation, chapter 18, on how the soul chooses, on how the soul chooses the devout life. Then chapter 19, general confession. Now, this isn't the show for us to go into what a general confession is. That will be addressed next month in Posturalia. I'm happy to say we're going to spend some time addressing a general confession. There are some of you listening tonight who have no idea what a general confession is, have never done it. Don't don't worry about it. You know, I didn't know about it till the first time I heard about it either. It's not uh, not something that was generally talked about in the Novus Ordo Church, which doesn't really believe in confession anyway. Novus Ordo sect that I grew up in, but uh, it's it's even even among traditionalists, it's not traditional Catholics. It's not necessarily something that's talked about all the time. General confession simply is the confession of all of the sins of your life that you can remember starting at the age of reason. Once you've done that initial general confession, it's a confession of all your sins since your last general confession. Now, it serves two purposes. One, it's an opportunity to, I would say, humiliate yourself more by looking back at a cumulative kaleidoscope of your sins. And and by that sense of humiliation, also to take the words from St. Paul uh, today and in the Mass is glorying in the grace and the forgiveness that have been given to you. But the second is also kind of a, a clean, what I've been told by priests, there's a cleanup factor that there might have been some, some venial sins that you've omitted or other sins that you didn't really address that you wanted more time to have a conversation about. And this is something, a general confession takes a lot of preparation and it can be quite emotionally draining. So it's something that you, you really have to, again, going back to chapter four, you're going to need to counsel with a priest about it, and then you're going to need to prep for it. Part one ends with chapters 22 and 23, talking about uh, getting away from, from particular uh, tendencies towards sins or even, even inclinations to things that, that may not be bad in and of themselves, but things that can take you things that can take you further away amusement plays uh, festivities um, I'll read just briefly here from from St. Francis sports balls plays festivities pomps are not in themselves evil but rather in different matters capable of being used for good or ill but nevertheless they are dangerous and it is still more dangerous to take great delight in them Therefore, my child, I say that although it is lawful to amuse yourself, to dance, dress, feast, and see seemly plays, at the same time, if you are too much addicted to these things, they will hinder your devotion and become extremely hurtful and dangerous to you. 
this is a point that some people had brought up uh, on the last clerical conversation show, which I guest hosted for Justin Soder, which we in which we talked about sports. There's going to be a follow up to that episode next uh, next month, which will be doing the sports and and some people, including including uh, some some of our benefactors, did not quite get the message that His Excellency and Father were trying to convey, which I think is the message here of St. Francis. There's nothing wrong with sports or games in and of themselves. There's a, a worry, and St. Francis used the word dangerous, there's a danger to take great delight in them, to be too attached to them. And that's something, something to keep in mind. So we'll move on to part two. And what's wonderful about part two is it's more of what I talked about in part one in terms of what St. Francis does for us in terms of a guided meditation. There's more uh, instruction on how to pray, how to engage in mental prayer. And I'm just going to read from the very first part of chapter two, which is in part two. It may be, my child, that you do not know how to practice mental prayer, for unfortunately it is a thing much neglected nowadays. I will therefore give you a short and easy method for using it until such time as you may read sundry books written on the subject. And above all, practice till it teaches you how to use it more perfectly. First of all, the preparation, which consists of two points, placing yourself in the presence of God, and second, asking his aid. And in order to place yourself in the presence of God, I will suggest four chief considerations, which you can use at first. And he goes through and, and uh, again, gives great, great advice. If you've been wondering, I need help with mental prayer, I need a guide, this is that guide. Chapter 19, as he after he's done quite a few of these meditations in, in part two, St. Francis de Sales speaks about confession. And I will just read the second paragraph of that, that, of that chapter, chapter 19. Make your confession humbly and devoutly every week, and always, if you can, before communicating, even though your conscience is not burdened with mortal sin. For in confession, you do not only receive absolution for your venial sins, but you also receive great strength to help you in avoiding them henceforth, clearer light to discover your failings, and abundant grace to make up whatever loss you have incurred through those faults. You exercise the graces of humility, obedience, simplicity, and love, and by this one act of confession, you practice more virtue than in any other. Again, I understand that weekly confession is not something that's available to many people. That's fine. But whenever possible, St. Francis of Sales is arguing weekly here, I, I, would, I would think that there's got to be, there's got to be some of that um, spirit of, if I can't do it weekly, how, how often can I do it? Now, I will. There's there's much more in this book, and I, I could spend I could spend the rest of the show talking about introductions about life. It's, it's absolutely beautiful, and it's like any good spiritual book. It's something you can keep going back to. You you never graduate from from a good spiritual book. Soul of the Apostle, which is one of my favorite books, was a bedside reading book for Saint Pius X. It was a book he just kept reading, kept reading. So many great lessons from that. I just want to read from the final chapter of Introduction About Life by St. Francis de Sales um, as, a, as a summary of what we've been talking about and with the apology that, that I can't get through the whole book, but I wanted to give you a little taste of, of how wonderful this book is and, and to just give it the strongest recommendation possible. 
So this is after you've gone through that cycle, making a resolution for, for the devout life, seeking a confessor or a spiritual director, um, then purging sins and attachments, exercising virtue, and renewing your devotion and, and basically renewing that circle again, going through that circle each time. So he starts by saying, this is part five, chapter 18. On the first day of every month, renew the resolution given in part one after meditation and make continual protestation of your intention to keep it saying with David, I will never forget thy commandments for with them thou hast quickened me. And whenever you feel any deterioration in your spiritual condition, take out your protest and prostrating yourself in a humble spirit, renew it heartily and you will assuredly find great relief. Make open profession of your desire to be devout. I will not say to be devout, but to desire it. And do not be ashamed of the ordinary needful actions which lead us on in the love of God. Acknowledge boldly that you try to meditate, that you would rather die than commit a mortal sin. You frequent the sacraments and follow the advice of your director, although for various reasons it may not be necessary to mention his name. This open confession that you intend to serve God and that you have devoted yourself deliberately and heartily to his holy love is very acceptable to his divine majesty for he would not have any of us ashamed of him or of his cross. Moreover, it cuts at the root of many a hindrance which the world tries to throw in our way, and so to say commits us to the pursuit of holiness. The philosophers of old used to give themselves out as such in order to be left unmolested in their philosophical life. And we ought to let it be known that we aim at devotion in order that we may be suffered to live devoutly. And if anyone affirms that you can live a devout life Without following all these practices and counsels, do not deny it, but answer meekly that your infirmity is great and needs more help and support than others may require. Finally, my beloved child, I entreat you by all that is sacred in heaven and in earth, by your own baptism, by the breast which Jesus sucked, by the tender heart which, with which he loves you, and by the bowels of compassion in which you hope, be steadfast and persevere in this most blessed undertaking to live a devout life. Our days pass away, death is at hand, the trumpet sounds a recall, says St. Gregory Nazianzen, in order that everyone may make ready, for judgment is near. When St. Symphorian was led to his martyrdom, his mother cried out to him, my son, my son, remember life eternal, look to heaven, behold him who reigns there, for the brief course of this life will soon be ended. Even so would I say to you, look to heaven, and do not lose it for earth. Look at hell and do not plunge therein for the sake of this passing life. Look at Jesus Christ and do not deny him for the world's sake. Amid of the devout life sometimes seems hard and dull. Join in St. Francis's song. So vast the joys that I await, no earthly travail seemeth great. Glory be to Jesus, to whom with the Father and the Holy Ghost be honor and glory now and ever, and to all eternity. Amen. I think that's an excellent way for us to end this part of Trad Reviews. For those of you who are just joining us, you are listening to Trad Reviews Episode 2 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner. I'm uh, running the show by myself today. And uh, a reminder that uh, Trad Reviews is a production of the Restoration Radio Network, all rights to reserve. And any um, broadcast of any of our shows without written permission is restricted. And while we say that, as a reminder, permission to air our work can usually be very easily obtained by writing to our executive producer at mail at truerestoration.org. You don't even have to say please. We'll probably, we'll probably 
have no problem letting you uh, use our work. So moving on from introduction to the devout life, we're moving on to, to Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur, which is a film that set the record for the number of Academy Awards won prior to Titanic and Lord of the Rings rolling around, which arguably, I don't know if they hold, well, maybe Lord of the Rings, but certainly not Titanic, I hold a candle to, to Ben-Hur in, in so many ways. And I, I think just, just by means of, of getting us into, into, into the mood for Ben-Hur, I'm going to play you a bit of the score, uh, um, which is a magnificent score, but, uh, but take a listen. You can hear it. This magnificent is it's old. It has that that old sound to it, and it's it's uh, it's an excellent excellent piece of piece of filmmaking and cinematography and scoring and acting. And it stars Charlton Heston, I suppose, when he as young as possible. And I guess I want to address at the outset: it's quite long. It's it's three hours and thirty four minutes. And that might be the first obstacle to watching this movie. So if you have younger children, they may have difficulty sitting through three and a half hours, even though it is something that I think will keep them engaged. I, I think a lot of people sell children short and think that they've got to have dragons and explosions and other things to keep them interested, iPads. But children are, are pretty wise, and they can they can be excited and engaged about you know, things that aren't flashy. And Ben Hur does have a bit of flash to it. I I, I thought so. So to address that point, it's three hour. It's, it's three a three and a half hour movie. If you're going to watch it, maybe break it up into three viewings. Maybe an hour, another hour, and then a final hour and a half. And and I think that might make it easier, especially if you have younger children in the family. If it's all teenagers or above. Uh, you know, tuck in with some snacks and, and watch the whole thing. Maybe take a, a, a walking or talking break halfway through. There are two stories going on in Ben-Hur. And again, I, I have to point out, if I'm going to talk about why I should recommend the movie, there will be some spoilers in here. So if you want, you can pause the podcast, walk out of the room, come back in about five minutes when I'm done talking about the plot lines and there won't be any more spoilers. There are two stories going on here. One, the story of our Lord, and the second is the story of Judah Ben-Hur. Interestingly enough, when the MGM credits start, it was the first time in MGM history that the lion, Leo the lion, who is the MG, uh, MGM um, mascot, does not roar 
normally, you know, you have this roaring lion. Uh, however, given that the first scene is the nativity of our Lord, it was thought that a roaring lion wouldn't make sense in the context of, and then you just think, wow, think about the respect. And of course, we can go into all sorts of discussions about, you know, bad movies that MGM has been behind. But but just looking at that and noting that for the first time in MGM history, there was a movie that didn't have a roaring lion. So they didn't stay true to their heritage out of respect for our Lord's nativity. And you'll see that respect all throughout the film. So even though our Lord is not the main character of Ben-Hur, he is the subtitle of the book on which the, the movie was made is A Tale of the Christ, of Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. And so there is, I don't want to say a typology, but there's definitely a, a, a linking to, to the Ben-Hur character. But what's wonderful about these scenes, it's mostly silent. We have this nativity. It's done so beautifully and respectfully. When you see it, you think you're watching a religious movie. So these scenes with our Lord, you, we see him... In, in the nativity, you know, we see that family, we see an interaction with St. Joseph talking about our Lord. Um, we see our Lord uh, in his hidden life giving water to to Ben-Hur, and I'll talk about how that happens. And, and the centurion tries to come to order Jesus and just looks at him, and you can see the power, the persuasive power of our Lord uh, giving... Um, giving the centurion pause and, and having him step back. And we also see him carrying the cross uh, towards the end of the movie. So, so in each of these cases, the nativity, the hidden life of our Lord, his public ministry, his passion and death, there is such reverence. We also see uh, it looks like the Sermon on the Mount. And you are watching our Lord through the faces of the people who can see him because Ben-Hur does not allow you to see our Lord. So all you ever see is the back of his head. Interestingly enough, the, the person tapped to play our Lord was a gentleman named Claude Heater, who was an American opera singer, who received no credit for the role, which I think was, was wonderful. You know, if you're playing our Lord, this idea that you're not even going to be credited for that. Uh, there's so much respect for divinity. They didn't want to show a face. They didn't want to give a voice to our Lord. I, I thought that the pow- that, that power of filmmaking, just watching it, we're so used to, let's say, Passion of the Christ or other movies in which our Lord is given a voice and given a face, that you see just how powerful it can be to not do that. What storytelling you can do without expression. So we have that story. The other story is about Judah Ben-Hur, who comes from, it would seem to be Jewish royalty at the time of, of Pilate. And he was good friends with a young Roman boy named Masala. And Masala has gone off to Rome to be educated. At one time when he was very young, he was saved. Ben-Hur saved him in a childhood accident. He could have died. But they're very strong friends. And they, they come back together because Masala is assigned to Judea. And, and he's an ambitious young man and wants to rise. And when he gets back to Judea, first thing he does is look up at her. Then her knows he's coming back. They, they meet, they chat. When are you coming for lunch? Already, though, in that conversation, there's a sense of conflict that Masala has really bought into the idea of Rome and what Rome stands for. And keep in mind, Roman is not, Rome is not Christian at this time. Rome is quite pagan. And Judah, of course, sees Rome as the oppressors of his people. He's a proud proud Jew and proud of his religion and his God. 
and he sees the Roman quite quite understandably as as interlopers as as occupiers of their of their country. So there's a bit of conflict. This conflict becomes accelerated when Masala visits, and you can see there's a lot of affection for Masala from from Judah's mother and sister. So there's an accident, uh, which happens the next day when the new governor comes in. This accident is blamed on on Judah and his family, even though Masala knows it wasn't, not just because he, he knows them and he's friends with them, but he actually examines the scene of the crime and he realizes it was an accident. But to show that he's firm, he sentences Judah to the galleys and he imprisons the mother and sister. So Judah goes off to the galleys, but not before trying to kill Masala. Uh, and Masala plays his trump card of kill me and your mother and sister will die. So he goes off to the galleys, saves a, a Roman consul who then makes him his adopted son and Judah finds his way back to Judea to take revenge on Masala. And I suppose I think I'll, I'll stop there because really it's such an enjoyable movie that I don't want to tell you all the plot points. But just think about that idea of him coming back, that at the same time that he's coming back to Judea, our Lord is in the midst of his public ministry and that Ben-Hur, soon-to-be wife, is going and telling him there's this rabbi who he talks about these teachings of love your enemy, Judah. And of course, Judah's just filled with hatred for Masala, and he wants to get his revenge. And it's, it's, it's a revenge epic in that way. But also, obviously, if this is a Christian tale, there's going to be a sense of forgiveness as well. So this is a well worth watching, highly recommended, 11 Academy Awards. And I can even say, I can, I can say this on the air, Bishop, Bishop Sanborn has given it his seal of approval. It's, it's a movie that, uh, that he can recommend. I think his exact words were, there's a couple of smoochy, smoochy scenes, but otherwise it's great. And he, he named, um, actually he named a heresy. I have to make sure he says that. Uh, as they're talking about this, this quote unquote rabbi in the early part of the film, they say, this rabbi says that God is in all of us. And uh, Bishop Sanborn reminded me, said, it's, that's not, not true. Obviously, if we're talking about the life of grace, yes, but there's a, a hint of pantheism there. So something to be careful of, but I think it's something you can easily, if you have children, you can, you can correct that with them, or you can just add that comment that obviously if we're talking about the life of grace. That's true, that uh, our Lord will come and make his home with, within you. Highly recommended, Bishop Sanborn approved. I don't think you can get much better than that. Uh, and something worth watching. I, I don't know. Uh, I was I was talking with a family who I admire, who's quite devout down in Florida, and they used to have family Friday movie nights, and then they cut it out. Uh, and they've, I think they've maybe they do movies once in a while, or they don't do movies at all. So obviously, if we're if we're doing a show in which we talk about movies, we aren't making the argument that you should never watch movies. But we also do want to caution you that we're not advocating that you need to watch movies every week or even every month, that if you do have the opportunity, that movies should be part of that bucket of options, whether it be playing games, having conversations, singing together, drawing, building things, going out in the backyard, taking walks. That movies should be part of that. I think too often in modern society, we are willing to just outsource things to movies, iPads, whatever's easy and digital and nearby. And I have to say that's the easy way out. Movies are quite enjoyable, but they have to be put in their place. 
If you have any comments about Ben-Hur or you think I'm totally crazy, you hate this movie, uh, feel free to give us a call. Again, our telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. Skip the line. You don't have to talk to me. You can just uh, write in on Twitter at True Restoration. Use the hashtag TradReviews, and we will get right to your question if you have any. So if you like Ben-Hur, if you don't like Ben-Hur, good reactions you've had from your family, bad reactions, anything along those lines will be, will be happy to, to deal with. So um, our last part of our show today, and, and as you know, our show for Trad Reviews is shorter than some of our other shows, we're going to be talking about Monopoly. The reason I picked this board game first is because I think it's one that's a little bit more questionable. And by that, I mean the entire notion of, of this game. That being said, I have to say, we're talking about not playing with house rules and playing by the rules set out in the official Monopoly game. So in the spirit of, of the idea that, that all games are simply games, you shouldn't be attached to them too much, winning or losing. And it's a great opportunity to learn sportsmanship and for, for people to be called out, say that you shouldn't say that, that's not nice. It's a teachable moment if we use the parlance of the modern world. So Monopoly has that uh, possibility. I, I confessed um, in clerical conversations that uh, the, um, <laughs> the very first time that I played Monopoly, I was six years old. And my parents were playing it downstairs. I wandered downstairs. I, I was the only child at that time. I think my mother was pregnant. No, that's not true. How, how could that be true? I was not an only child. I think my sister was somewhere else. She wasn't in the room. So I, uh, I came down. I insisted um, to, to play. Uh, I insisted that I would play Monopoly. For those of you who, who know me, or, or maybe those of you who just, just know me from the radio, you can probably tell that I'm not someone who takes no for an answer very easily. And I, I insisted that I was going to play Monopoly. And I think anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes later, I was, I was bankrupt. And I went up to my, I stormed up to my room, cried. And, and I thought it was interesting. Because the first thing that Father Chicada had said, he said, well, you, what you, he said, I would have thought you would have cleaned everyone out. So, you know, maybe people just perceive I'm more ruthless now than when I was uh, as a child. But I do think, obviously, any game has the opportunity to, to break hearts and make people cry. I get that. Being children, that happens. Um, but what's interesting about Monopoly is it, it, it can go either way. I, I think, as St. Francis of Sales says in Introduction to It About Life, there are things that, um, there are, things that um, are in themselves indifferent. He says, plays sport, et cetera. He says they're, they're not in and of themselves evil. It's, it's how someone can be attached to them. So, um, what I, I think, uh, oh, uh, Justin, who's, who's pr producing our show, has, has something you want to say. Justin, what is it that, that you want to tell, tell our listeners about, uh, about my, my attitude on board games? You're a really bad loser at board games. <laughs> Very competitive. Cutthroat would be the word. Hey, but here's the thing. You know what's funny is I actually think that I've gotten better 
about that. So whatever you see now, it used to be 90% worse. So think about that. I've, I've made some progress. Of course, there's the, par- the, the, the paradox, paradox of, of humility is you can't brag about making any progress, right? So I, I, can't, I can't brag that I've become more humble, but I definitely, I think, gotten better uh, about... You have uh, the humility and the ambition, right? <laughs> yeah, I have the, as, as uh, Bergoglio says, I, I have the humility and the ambition to be more humble at playing board games. So, so let me ask you, Justin, have you ever played Monopoly without house rules? Yes, I have. And uh, okay, I have so, to say that... So clarify for, well, clarify for well, our audience what that means. Well, essentially what that means is the people that are playing the board game, <clears throat> um, they kind of surrender what the board game rules are. And they start making up their own rules, and they start throwing in things like um, uh, interest, money on free parking, money on free parking. Exactly, the money on free parking. Um, if you don't have the money to pay rent, you have to surrender some of your properties. Um, it, it, you know, they can really get pretty dynamic in terms of the creativity that they have on this game. So, uh, and I found it fascinating because I remember. Uh, when I was in high school, we used to play you know, Monopoly very, very often uh, in my accounting class. Go figure, right? And uh, he, it was he was really a fascinating reflection of human nature to see what happens when given the medium of the game and then turning into a free-for-all. I mean, everyone immediately took the game and tried to, how should I say this, angle things to maximize profit. At, at no matter, uh, should I say, um, no matter what cost to anybody else, they would come up with very cutthroat rules. And uh, I just kind of found it fascinating. I mean, of course, at the time, you, know, you have to remember at the time, I didn't really have a Catholic understanding of economics. And I mean, I was just playing the game with them and uh, often getting my clock cleaned and my bank account totally zeroed out and having to walk away <laughs> going, what in the world happened, you know? Um, but, right. uh, yeah, it's fascinating how, how people sort of default to that. It, it, it's a real, it's a real, uh, fascinating lesson in human nature. And I think obviously the books, the, the book, the, the, the game is a, a sort of meta commentary on capitalism, which we haven't done a show. We did do a show on economics in season one, but we haven't really done a show on, on a, a true indictment of capitalism and what a Catholic, a lot of people default to the idea that capitalism is good because the United States practices capitalism and the United States is always good. Um, so the idea at a meta level, this is a discussion of capitalism, but I think at a micro level, it can be a really good opportunity for children to see, and people, not just children, people to see how money works. How should I not overextend myself if I'm owning property? How does improving my property bring me, bring in more rent? How can I manage my money better? So in, in, in turn, instead of the idea of I need to crush my opponents and kill everybody, that, that's ruthlessness, that there's this idea of I just want to manage my money better than everyone else. And if you land on my property, you have to pay rent. Now, the house rule would mean that you can't allow people to skip rent. Uh, the house rules include there's no putting money on free parking. All these house rules just make the game longer. So people wonder, it's like, well, you don't play Monopoly anyway because it takes 17 hours. Well, that's because you play with house rules. If you take away these house rules, free parking is basically a lottery ticket. People land on it. They get bailed out. So if you remove a bailout mechanism, if you remove people being able to forgive rent 
or make these side deals. You can you can deal with people. You can trade properties and stuff. But the side rules come in where Justin lands on my property. He doesn't have enough money. And I say, okay, I don't ever want to pay rent when I land on your green properties. And he says, done. Well, that's house rules. You, that, that's not allowed in the game rules. And you'll find the game ends a lot faster simply because not everyone manages their money well. And I think that there's a good opportunity there on a micro level to talk about money management, property ownership, and as we spoke about earlier, to have good sportsmanship. If you lose, lose gracefully. I would hope, Justin, what did we play? We played Settlers together. Right. What else have we played? I think I think Settlers was it. Settlers of Catan. I think that was the only game okay. that we played. So, I mean, I hope. I mean, I hope. I mean, I didn't. I, don't don't give the listeners the impression like I threw a tantrum and like you know decapitated. No, you didn't throw a tantrum yeah. or anything. So no, but I mean, <laughs> I mean I, he had to deal. You know, I, I like, okay. But, I was going to tell our listeners, you know, Stephen had to place himself in the company of three melancholics, and I had never played Settlers <laughs> of Catan, and, and I don't want to detour the story too much here, but um, I was feeling mopey and sorry for myself because I couldn't figure out how the game worked, and you know, Nicholas was <laughs> you know, Nicholas was trying to explain to me as it went along, and Stephen was getting very cutthroat with me on this, you know, and, and, and you know, he was trying to trade ore and sheep and things like that, and uh, for those of you who are familiar with settlers, I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure that we'll have a you know a show on that soon. But um, you know, all that being said, um, I, I'll say one one uh, one sidebar about uh, losing the house rules was I remember a game uh, of Monopoly that went on amongst I think I was a junior in high school, junior or senior, I can't really remember now. It's been so long ago, but they they essentially had had taken. Monopoly, and then allowed the the individual players to give out loans to one another, and it was it was interesting <laughs> to see when when one person loaned another person you know fake fake funny money, how serious they took that. I mean, they were really really serious about getting their money back and charging you know charging people penalties, and you know they would they would adopt rules like you know every ten times around you'd have to give me a property if you didn't have enough money to pay me. And uh, it, it, it it sort of became like, like, uh, like Merchant of Venice stuff right there. Pound of yeah. yeah, I mean, really, it kind of turns into this this very uh, this very cutthroat view, kind of kind of the American system uh, in microcosm. I think you're right. I think, and, and again, that goes back to what 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 human what are we bringing out? I think Bishop Dolan talked about this in the sports show. Are we bringing out the better angels of our nature? Or are we bringing out the very worst? And we're provided with an opportunity to to exercise our better judgments, right? So we're saying that this is a chance for you not to give in to your human nature, your human nature, which wants to charge some, you know, have someone give you a property every 10 rounds or something like that. So uh, I think that's interesting. I, I, I did some research uh, for the show. Do you Did you ever hear of a, a, a game called Catholic Opoly? No. It, it it's one of these. Huh, I want I want to be kind is that, here. Is that where they start I, selling off church properties due to scandals? Yeah. <laughs> that's Novus Ordo Opoli, I think. Right. Uh, let me, I'll read the description. I'll read the description here. So it's out of business now. If you go on Amazon, ironically, at the free market price, it's one hundred and ninety-five dollars to buy. <laughs> uh, Catholic <laughs> because it's out of print. No one makes it anymore. 
So if you want, you can buy one for 109, which is this irony, of course, that it's at a free market price when probably Catholicopoly isn't, isn't a free market game. So Catholicopoly is a religious family board game based on the Catholic faith. The goal of the game is not to accumulate wealth, but to build many churches, as many churches and cathedrals as possible in order to spread the word of the Lord. Well, that sounds Novosordo as in the word of the Lord. Um, Boy, it does, doesn't it? By bankrupting your opponents, but in a nice, fun way. Uh, I don't know how that works. That. You still win by bankrupting your opponents but in a nice, fun way. Players will also learn scriptures and church history. In addition, the game addresses financial management as well as charity and tithing. Game tokens include an angel, ark, chalice, donkey, dove, and fish. The drawing cards are faith and community service. Uh, comical situations are encountered such as you forgot to put the kneeler down and jammed your knee. Pay the doctor $50. Catholicopoly is Are you kidding me? Are you serious? <laughs> no, it's, I'm reading from, from it, and it's an enjoyable way to learn about the Catholic faith. So I, I haven't played this game. If, it, if any of our listeners own or have played this game, give us a call and give us some feedback, because I'm going to offer an opinion solely based on, on what I've read here. So again, our number, this is our last topic, this is our last time we'll be giving out our number for tonight, 949-272-9417. 949-272-9417. If you have Catholicopoly or you've ever played Catholicopoly, you want to give us your opinion, let me let me know. But my opinion, just from doing the research, taking a look at some of the game pieces, etc., is this is something where you could, instead of adapting what is in itself a flawed game, so Monopoly has its flaws partly because it's, it's a meta acceptance of, of capitalism, which is a flawed system in, in numerous ways and isn't a Catholic system. And because it, it can bring out uh, avaritional, that's not, that's not a good adjective, tendencies of avaricious within ourselves, yeah, avaricious, um, that instead of, instead of simply adapting and putting a Catholic veneer on a game like this, to just put in the effort to just create a Catholic game. It doesn't look like Monopoly. So, for example, you have um, Sorry, which is an adaptation of, uh, of Parcheesi, which is a much more ancient and, and better game than Sorry, but you have an adaptation of that that's a bit more simple and interesting. Catholicopoly, I, I applaud the intent. I, I get where the game, and it went out of business, so it couldn't have been that good. Right, we understand here at Restoration Radio that the Catholics don't necessarily um, support um, these these games. So the fact that it went out didn't necessarily mean that it was bad. But the market tends to keep alive things that are really good. So the fact that it's out of business, it couldn't it couldn't have been that good. But I, I Justin, I, and you know, I'd like to hear your opinion. But my thought on this is why. Why just adapt uh, a worldly game when you can spend the time and work with your children, create your own game in your house, and think through, do I want to use trivia? Do I want to use dice? What kind of pieces? Make it yourself. So Catholicopoly is a chance for us to think about how can we make our own games in our house? How fun that would be to just sit and make up a game together with the little society you've created, your family. Yeah, I mean... 
I'm not sure how you can put a Catholic spin on a game that the intent is to bankrupt your opponent. I mean, that, that seems a bit, <laughs> that seems a bit incompatible, I think, but I, I tend to side with, uh, with your thoughts on that. I mean, you, you look at the game and you say, okay, they're trying to put a Catholic spin on this. They're trying to do something positive, but I mean, I wonder if that game, uh, under the little community chest, was a community chest and chance. I, I wonder if they, uh, they have that 75% of your luxury tax you have to pay on that. I mean, uh, you know, well, that, that's... A, well, it's not, it's not chance. Um, it's called faith, right? Oh, faith. Oh, okay. okay. All right. See what they did there? It's not chance. It's see, you know, see, I hear that. And, you know, and to use a quote from another one of our, our show guests, you know, my antennas start to twitch a little bit when I hear that faith because I expect someone, you know, the, you know, there to be a card in there. You, know, you turn it over and it says, oh, stand up and share your faith testimony with all the participants. You know, I, I just, you know, share, share your faith journey or something like that. Um, well, and I'm sure there, but, there's obviously an opportunity for a Protestant to create a card that goes in the deck, you know, buy your way into heaven, you know, for oh, right. indulgence, yes. or uh, buy buy an idol to worship, you know, buy a wooden idol to to worship, uh, you know, that's another thirty thirty dollars. Exactly. So. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, I I think it's a. I think it's a rather menial attempt to try to put uh, to put this into perspective. I I, I wouldn't. Uh, I mean, I have no desire to go out and buy the game. However, I would be interested if anybody actually has played this game or has even seen this game. I mean, until five minutes ago, I never even knew this game existed. Now, I did know that that um, the Parker Brothers did several different uh, several different iterations of this, and it's fascinating because the city that I grew up in, my parents years ago before I was born, the Chamber of Commerce in my city was actually selling as a fundraiser drive um, the name of my birth city dash. Monopoly. Um, so we actually have a uh, we actually have a sealed monopoly game that has properties from my birth city. Um, so I knew that they were doing all kinds of derivations on this, but I didn't know they 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 had a Catholic monopoly. Was that put out by Parker Brothers? I'm sure it does. It's sort of an ironic twist to that, Justin. Um, the Parker Brothers did some 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 legal footwork to to sort of claim the game as it is, and even though another man had a better claim and Parker brothers eventually lost, the man went bankrupt trying to claim the, the rights of the game back from Parker brothers. There's so sort of an ironic, huh. uh, quite fitting twist there that Parker brothers would sue someone else to keep a mm-hmm. monopoly on monopoly. Right. Hmm. Fascinating. So would you, um, so I guess moving back to the Monopoly topic, so, I mean, are you saying this is a game that if you had children, you wouldn't let them play, or would you let them play it? I, and I, would, I be... would give it, if we're talking in terms of introduction of the devout life, strongly, strongly recommended, Ben-Hur, um, strongly recommended, or One Touch Underneath, strongly recommended, just maybe because of length. Monopoly, I don't know that I can say recommended, I can. I think I can only say proceed with caution, or or with reservations. With the caveats, you need to be making sure that whenever you see an overtly capitalist part of the game, where, for example, a Catholic landowner would try to give someone a break if they couldn't pay rent one month. So, Justin, if I own the property and, and you were renting from me and, and you couldn't pay rent, the game rules say that I'm not allowed to give you an abatement. Right? But as a Catholic, right. we know that if we have the means to give you an abatement, that we should. But the game doesn't right. even allow you to exercise that judgment. 
And so you have to ask yourself, is this a talking point for me with my child to say, honey, after the game, say, you know, you know, as, as Christians, we would, we would allow someone, if we had the money, we would allow someone to maybe be a month late, get caught up, something bad might happen in their life. That, that's a teachable moment. If, if you don't, maybe the idea comes in that justice is more important than mercy, which is sort of the opposite of what the Christian life is supposed to be about. So I'm not going to recommend the game. I'm simply going to say if you play it, uh, you ha- have reservations, have warnings, be mindful of the subconscious messages that the game is putting out that your children may imbibe un- unknowingly. And beware. I know it's an enjoyable game. I'm not, uh, you know, Bishop Bishop Dolan was saying in the sports show, he didn't want to create new categories of sin. And I'm just a layman. So I'm not trying to, you know, tell you what you can or can't do. But I'm trying to just share my own reservations about this, uh, honestly. And if you can if you can take an honest step back and realize I'm not attacking you, or I'm not trying to destroy your family time. Maybe you all love Monopoly and you've been playing it for years. Just... Take a step back and ask yourself: Have I have I looked at these aspects? Is this something I, I need to be mindful of? And like I said I don't think it's a sin to play Monopoly. Again, I'm not a person to speak about that. Ask a priest. But I, I do think that you need to have your eyes wide open if you're going to play it. There are other better games which we're going to talk about, which we will be able to recommend strongly later this season. But Monopoly is not one of them. Did you want to add anything? I would add. Close out. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think, like you said, just just to kind of you know, segue off of that. I mean, you have to have your eyes open. You have to have some supervision with that because, yeah, I think, granted, now I started playing Monopoly, gosh, probably, I mean, eight or ten years old, I would suspect, was the first time I, I, I had any type of dealings with that board game. And um, I think something that it does to the unsupervised child is that it sort of instills this this uh, this view that people are just economic widgets. You know, you, you, there's no, um, if there's, if there's no supervision, kids can be taught at a very, very young age, and this can be ingrained in their mind uh, to the point where um, by the time they become adults, I mean, they can carry this whole idea over with them that, that uh, well, um, all that matters at the end of the day is money. I mean, I'm sorry you can't afford to pay me, sir, but uh, if you don't pay me the money that you owe me, you're, I'm taking your property, or I'm taking this or that or the other, uh, or whatever side deals you're making. So... I mean, I I agree with you. I mean, I by no means uh, would, would think of it as a as a sin or anything to play the game. Of course, you know, like you, I'm subject to correction on that, but I I wouldn't think that would be the case. But um, so long as the supervision is close and the the principles of the game are followed, um, with the the parents correcting the child on, okay, well, <laughs> Johnny, Susie, we have to talk about this. So. You understand, and then of course, I mean, after the child has been corrected and, and they're they're well aware of the fundamental flaw of the game, uh, then you know, then it becomes pretty safe, I think, and it can become fun. But yeah, I mean, much like you, I mean, I've played that game so many times that you know, I can I can play it in my sleep, and of course, uh, having to play it in the cutthroat manner that I had to play with many of my my young counterparts. I mean, you know, you learn quickly how to take advantage of the game and the players. And so I think that's kind of the bad side of the board game. Uh, I, I think that's a great way to end. And uh, Justin, thanks for coming out from behind the producer wall to, to help. No problem. Monopoly. Of course, it was to call me out. Of course, I appreciate that. Appreciate you, my friend. <laughs> so we'll put you back behind the producer wall now. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're at the tail end of Trad Reviews, Episode 2. Uh, on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Stephen Heiner. I've been your host. 
as I said, I've been in a very good mood tonight all throughout the show, although I, I did try my best. I hope I did a good job trying to stay as serious as I could through the very serious matter of introduction to devout life, which is the first topic we covered today, a book can't recommend enough. Again, I, I urge you stop, especially as Lent comes, stop making excuses for why you can't read spiritual books and start asking yourself if you're happy with your spiritual life. That's all I'm going to say. I, I don't pretend to know what your schedule's like. I don't pretend to know how many hours you work. One of my brothers-in-law works 80 hours a week. You know, he's putting food on the table for his family. He's got four kids. I get that. So I, I'm not blind to that. That being said, our Lord wants more, he, you know, and he will not be outdone in generosity. So introductions about life, can't recommend it highly enough. Put it on your reading list if you haven't read it. And secondly, uh, part of your diversion, Ben-Hur, a movie that has the Bishop Sanborn seal of approval, and you can watch it safely. And uh, with he, as you said, the caveat, there's a couple smoochy. His exact quote was, there are a couple smoochy, smoochy scenes. They're not very long, of course. And it's funny to think about how far, unfortunately, we've come today. You, you know, we, we would laugh about that now, but it's terrible that we would. And then lastly, we talked about Monopoly. Uh, had a chance to speak with our producer, Justin, who, uh, who took, came out from this, uh, the producer wall and, and uh, told everybody, told the entire uh, Catholic world uh, that I'm a bad, bad loser. I would hope uh, if, if that is the case, I hope to amend my ways and, and be better. Although, as I said, there's the paradox of bragging that you've gotten better at being humble. You can't really do that. So Monopoly not recommended by Trad Reviews and only uh, to be played with reservations, cautions, uh, taking time to walk your children through the numerous false premises that the game lays out. So I'm Stephen Heiner. I've been your host tonight for Trad Reviews. I just want to remind you that we at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found the show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our postulate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions about today's show, again, use Twitter. Use our handle at True Restoration with the hashtag Trad Reviews. Or send us an email, mail at truerestoration.org. Uh, if you have a, a general network question, if you have a question specific to this show, tradreviews at truerestoration.org. Thank you for taking the time to, to listen tonight. And for the restoration, I am Stephen Heiner. May God bless you.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.